This week, the brain cells that make some rats thrill-seekers and others overcautious. We could instantaneously convert them from uh, risk-seeking to risk-averse. And how to go from make-use-dispose to make-use-repair-reuse. Whatever I have, I try to figure out uh, how long I can use it. And that's why I've kept my first car from 1969, and I'm still driving it. Plus using magnets and radio waves to control the activity of an animal's cells. In some of the studies we published earlier, uh, we could just change the activity of a gene by literally waving a magnet that was bought at a hardware store over the liver of an animal. This is The Nature Podcast for March the 24th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Scientists have known for a long time that changing the electrical activity of brain cells affects their function. That's why electroshock therapy is still used to treat a range of psychiatric disorders. But over the years, we've got better and better at controlling the electrical activity of specific regions of the brain. To treat diseases like Parkinson's, for example, an electrode can be implanted to stimulate neurons in a part of the brain. But the problem with methods like these is that they require permanent implant in the brain, which is very invasive. Wouldn't it be great if you could just turn cells on and off with just a radio wave or a magnet? Well, Jeffrey Friedman and collaborators at Rockefeller University in New York definitely thought so. I called Jeffrey up to find out about their new approach. So uh, we've developed uh, a method uh, that allows you to control the activity of nerve cells and other cells now using a magnetic field. The system takes advantage of two different components. The first component is a channel known as TRIP-V1. TRIP-V1 is a a receptor in your tongue and also nerve cells that senses thermal pain. Um, So this is the channel that's turned on if you eat a hot piece of pizza and recoil. Now, our original idea was this. Uh, Everyone knows that if you put metal in a microwave, it heats. And so our idea was that if we could put this ferritin iron binding protein in proximity to the channel and, and expose it to a radio wave, the particle would heat and that would open the channel. And indeed, we found that to be the case. So later on, we tried using just a magnet rather than a radio wave and found that also was capable of opening uh, the channel. We think this adds another arrow in the technical quiver that allows us to ask questions about how particular nerve populations control activity. So you've got a way of tethering this ferritin to the channels of cells, but how, how do you get it access to that place in the first place if we're looking at the brain? We, we deliver these proteins by introducing the DNA molecules or genes that would direct their expression. And in order to do this, we need to inject a a virus into specific parts of the brain. I think it's absolutely fair to say that it is uh, is invasive in terms of introducing the constructs, but at the same time, uh, you can, after the fact, now regulate the cells without the need for an implant. So now that you have these little controls in certain parts of the brain that you can control with a magnetic field, what do you actually do with them? How, How do you control them? Do you just wave a magnet about? Well, yes. In, in, in some of the studies we published earlier, uh, as we were developing this method, we could just uh, change the activity of, of cells, or at least in the, in the specific experiment, we did change the activity of a gene by literally waving a magnet that was bought at a hardware store over the liver of an animal. In the current experiments, uh, we deliver the magnetic field simply by changing the proximity of an animal 
to a standard MRI machine. I think clearly in future we'll, <laughs> we'll want to develop uh, devices that can deliver the appropriate uh, strength magnetic field without uh, the need for either a hand wave magnet or, a, or an MRI machine. So in this experiment, you're actually uh, looking at a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. What function in the mice were you, were you looking at? So the hypothalamus is, is a very specialized and important part of the brain. It's at the base of the brain, and it plays a critical role in controlling most, if not all, basic bodily functions. Uh, we've been interested for some time now in, in, in studying brain circuitry that controls metabolism and feeding behavior. And so we applied the method that enables magnetic control or radio wave control of neural activity to ask the question, what is the impact of either activating or inhibiting neurons in this part of the brain on glucose metabolism and feeding? And what we found was that activating the glucose sensing cells of the hypothalamus increased uh, blood glucose, it nearly doubled it, and also increased feeding behavior. It really illustrates, uh, to my satisfaction at least, that the brain is really a very key site at which blood glucose is sensed. And so it's almost as if there's a, a very powerful controller in the brain that controls these two basic biologic functions. Was this something that was expected about the hypothalamus, or is this genuinely news to you? <laughs> well, I think it was surprising to me. I'll leave it for other people to decide whether it was surprising to them. Obviously, this is the kind of thing that ideally we'd like to somehow one day be able to use in humans, apart from the complications of actually getting the virus into the brain in the first place. How would you even be able to get a magnet that was strong enough to get through a human skull? We're a long way away from... Uh, a clinical therapy derived from this, it's certainly something we'd like to explore, but many steps have to be taken before we could e even contemplate a human set of experiments. Por some of those steps will include making less bulky, portable, maybe even wearable devices. And toward that end, we've begun to model what sort of field strengths we would need to control neural activity, how we would deliver fields of that strength. And we're also thinking if there are ways to, to improve the sensitivity of the system. Obviously, the more sensitive the system becomes to a magnetic field, the less power would be required in the device. That was Jeffrey Friedman. Check out his paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up later in the show, turning thrill-seeking rats into risk-averse rodents. But before that, turning trash into treasure. Here's Charlotte Stoddart. Skyscrapers, cars, pieces of furniture. They start out as shiny objects of desire, but pretty soon most end up in landfill. Even skyscrapers. Last year, the United States threw away some 75% of its construction and demolition debris. What a waste. There's growing interest in alternatives to this make-use-dispose attitude. Proponents like to think of these alternatives as the circular economy. It's about more than just recycling. It's about repairing, updating and reusing items and, if that's not possible, breaking them down into their constituent parts and using them to build something new. Basically, it's about using your resources much more efficiently and, and productively and, and really delaying materials going to landfill. That's Martin Charter, director of the Centre for Sustainable Design at the University of Creative Arts in the UK. 
what we see in reality is that many companies still really don't think about what happens to their product at the end of life. So I particularly remember doing some training in Hong Kong with 20 individual Hong Kong-based companies, and only one of the 20 companies had had any idea of what happened to its product at the end of life. Martin would like companies to take responsibility for the lifespan of their products. And you can't just start thinking about this when you're about to knock a building down. You have to start at the design stage. So it's designing in, for example, uh, dismantleability, upgradability, repairability. There is a very big difference between, you know, cosmetic repairs to a piece of furniture um, that may be happening through charities through to whole new business models that are designed to enable multiple lives out of products. And a few companies are doing it. Construction company BAM are starting to design elements of their building for disassembly, promising to buy back some structural materials and return them to suppliers. And the photocopier maker Xerox... ...claim they get seven to eight lives out of their photocopier platforms by designing in uh, dismantleability and upgradability. So essentially, really is a strong element of, of product life extension. That approach wastes less material, but also means Xerox can make more money by reselling their reconditioned products. It might seem like this vogue for reusing and recycling is a new trend, but it goes back to the 1970s when a young Swiss architect called Walter Stahel wrote to the European Commission with an idea. I'm Walter Stahel and for the last 40 years I've pursued the, the same idea and I'm still doing it. Walter wrote to the Commission to highlight how wasteful it is to dispose of old products instead of repairing them. As an architect, I knew that in refurbishing a, an existing building, it takes much more labour, but of course you save about 80% of the initial resource and energy input. And I thought the same could also apply to manufactured goods as, such as cars. So therefore, the, the fact that in the 1970s we had a high unemployment and the energy price jumped threefold gave me the idea that logically we should use more labor and less energy, less oil, because that makes, uh, that is common sense. Today, energy prices might be relatively low, but there's a strong environmental argument for saving resources. And even with low energy prices, Walter says the approach can save companies money. Remanufacturing goods, for example, is uh, about a third cheaper than manufacturing an equivalent new one. And so you would expect that some people uh, jump on the opportunity to remanufacture goods. But that does not happen. Why doesn't it happen? Partly because it involves changing whole business models, and that's difficult. Martin Charter again. If a company has a successful business model, they don't necessarily want to change that. And, and any change from one model to another takes time and effort and, and, and retraining, reconfiguring systems, etc., etc. 
But there's another problem, says Walter. We simply don't know how to disassemble and reuse many materials. The effort of most universities, and especially the hard science, goes into developing better new materials. But I don't know any university at the moment that is doing research or training chemists or engineers on what I call the era of D, on delaminating, de-alloying, on, on splitting molecules, because it's only if we can split molecules and recycle pure atoms that we can really close the loop and reuse materials forever, because the focus is still on manufacturing. Perhaps companies and individuals should follow Walter Starhell's example. I basically use life as an experiment. Whatever I buy or whatever I have, I try to figure out uh, how long I can use it. And that's why I've kept my first car from 1969, and I'm still driving it. It's the willingness of the owner to make sure the thing does not become waste that makes uh, a long-life product. Walter Starhell and before him Martin Charter talking to Charlotte Stoddart. To find out more about the researchers and companies trying to close the loop and redefine waste as a resource, check out a special collection of articles in this week's Nature at nature.com slash the circular economy. And if you've recently found new uses for old materials yourself, or if you're one of those rare scientists studying recycling rather than making, why not let us know your current project? We're on email, podcast at nature.com, and on Twitter at naturepodcast. Coming up in the news chat, China's five-year plan for science and how scientists are using Apple's research kit. That's after the research highlights with Corrie Locke. At the Paralympic Games, runners who wear a left-leg prosthesis could be at a disadvantage compared to those with a right-side one. That's because races are run in the counterclockwise direction. Athletes with the left-leg prosthesis would always have their prosthetic leg on the inside of the curved track and that slows them down more than people who have their prosthetic leg on the outside of the curve. Researchers noticed this when they studied videos of running amputees and measured the speeds of the athletes. The researchers say that the inside foot spends more time in contact with the ground than the outside one when running on curves, and this lowers running speeds. The study was in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Cancer cells grow fast and have huge appetites, they suck up nutrients from the bloodstream, and it turns out they also receive little care packages of nutrients from surrounding healthy cells. Researchers studied these tiny membrane-bound sacs called exosomes. They looked at exosomes generated by cells from healthy human tissue that was near prostate and pancreatic tumors. They found that when cancer cells took up these exosomes, the tumor cells increased their metabolism. Inside the exosomes were amino acids and other nutrients that helped to sustain tumor growth when other nutrients were in short supply. The study was in the journal eLife. So Adam, in the lead up to this next bit, I have a choice for you. Uh, in front of you are two groups of paper cups. These ones on your left, they hold a guaranteed one chocolate button. So every time you pick this side, a cup from this side, you know you'll get a chocolate reward. I do like chocolate. Are you a bit hungry? <laughs> yeah, I could definitely use all of those cups. Now, th now those ones on your right, there's a 25% chance 
that you'll get multiple buttons, four buttons at once. But um, that's only the case in one of these cups. And if you pick any of the others, that's a 75% chance you might get only one quarter of a button, which is just not even worth having. I don't want one quarter of a button. I want four buttons. But how much do you want it? Are you going to pick from the left where you get a guaranteed reward that's very small? Or are you going to gamble on the right? Well, I feel like I am meant to be picking the one on the left. There's no right or wrong. You say that, but you're looking at me in a very judgmental way. So I feel like I'm meant to pick the one on the left like a good, sensible person. Have a go. Well, I don't want to pick the one on the left. I want to pick the one on the right. Okay. There you go. And how have you done? I've got a quarter of a button. Oh, chocolate dust. Disappointing. It's uh, You got a bit unlucky there. But if you do this, it turns out, in enough people over enough time, you see that there are individual differences in how much risk people are willing to take. And people are very consistent over time. So perhaps you're just a thrill-seeker or risk-taker by nature. Some people are just riskier or more cautious. Now, the chocolate button test, that's an exact parallel of a recent study in rats. Only the rats got little microliter drops of sugary water rather than chocolate. Do you want another button? Yes. Now, what the researchers were trying to get at was, firstly, do rats have the same personality differences in riskiness as people? And secondly, which circuits of cells in their brains are coordinating this trait? And finally, can their risk profile be altered? Can risk-loving rats or risk-loving Adams be made to take the safer bet? Here's the lead author on the new study. He's a veteran of the show, for those who've listened for a while, neuroscientist and psychiatrist Carl Dyseroth at Stanford University. If you think about the course of human history, I think uh, it's clear that willingness to take uh, risky ventures has been uh, crucial to our success and our survival. On the other hand, as as we all know, it uh, can come with very serious adverse consequences as well. And this shows up both in the course of normal life and in, in a, uh, psychiatric disease. And so it's a very interesting question how the possibility of unfavorable outcomes, the recent history of unfavorable outcomes, how those are played out in the brain and how they affect uh, behavior. So there's a general human interest, there's a clinical interest. And what was left to know about risk? Because we do have some understanding of which bits of the brain are, are processing it. Yes. And so we were interested in, in uh, going beyond the sort of a, a region of the brain type uh, understanding. And we wanted to uh, address what you might call the circuit dynamics of risk. During the actual moment of consideration of the possibility of an unfavorable outcome uh, and choosing to take a more risky compared to a safe course, which activity patterns and which cells were not only active but, but causally important? So these are the cells that are sort of, should I stay home, should I go out, should I bungee jump, should I, should I stay on this platform? <laughs> More or less, yes. So here then you set up a study where you first figured out whether rats were thrill seekers or safety lovers, and then you used optogenetics, which is this technique that you developed which can turn neurons on and off using light, and you use that to interfere with the signals that neurons are sending to each other, all taking place in this region called the nucleus accumbens. Yes, that's right. So with optogenetics, you can provide or in inhibit activity signals in targeted cells and with great temporal precision. And so in a task like this, uh, we have the capability of delivering the uh, optical stimulation to the targeted cells at exactly the moment that we want during the task, i.e. during the decision period or during the reward consumption period, for example. And it's quite dramatic what happens. So here's the rat. It's choosing between the safe lever and the risky lever. And just as it's doing that, it gets this little bolt of light to this certain group of cells. And then what? Well, the striking thing was that we could 
instantaneously convert them from uh, risk-seeking to risk-averse, uh, even at a single trial level, but we could also do it in a more stable pattern uh, uh, over the course of a day or more. And so uh, what this showed us was that this precisely timed pulse of activity uh, was uh, able to change the uh, trait behavior of the animals. What information is it therefore standing in for? Like what is that signal doing that changes their decision? Ah, well, here's where the other uh, side of the study comes in is we were also very interested in observing what is normally happening in these very same cells during exactly this task at these exact times. We found that animals that had just come off a unfavorable outcome, so they had chosen risky and lost, they'd gotten that tiny negligible little bit, they had a very striking pulse of activity during their next decision, when they next had to come and decide which lever to to press. It looked as if it was a signal saying, uh, effectively, uh, hold on, probably not uh, a time to take the risky choice. The cells you found and the signal you found them sending, or that you were able to then artificially put in, was basically the kind of, are you sure you want to do this, cells? (laughs) Right. I mean, I think that's a... That's exactly how we think about it in the lab, of course, uh, at what level uh, the animal is is aware of uh, the nature of the decision being made is a very interesting question we can't answer. You feel like in some fields, let's take politics, um, it would be helpful for people to look more at their previous or their predecessors' previous experiences and have these cells flash (laughs) flash a little more heavily at them. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're right. We need a social version of this where other people's recent unfavorable experiences are, are relevant bit of a stretch. But so basically people and rats are risk takers because perhaps these unfavorable previous outcomes don't affect them so much. They're more kind of optimistic about it. Well, yes, this is a great question. So then we looked at the the rats with different uh, trait variability and we looked at those naturally occurring uh, signals. uh, And we found indeed that the uh, risk seeking animals did not muster at the decision time nearly as much of a of this uh, hold on signal. And with your psychiatrist hat back on, just at the end here, Carl, some drugs have these unintended side effects of making people take more risks, and also some psychiatric disorders themselves have, as part of their symptom profile, uh, increased risk taking. I mean, what do these findings, basic science as they are, what kind of insight do they give you clinically? Well, I think there's a a primary and overwhelming clinical relevance, which is uh, simply understanding. And that may sound simple, but for psychiatry, uh, just to be able to to tell people, to tell patients and families and society more broadly, that there is a a real biological basis for these uh, traits uh, and these states that people can get into, uh, that brings actually by itself brings hope and, and understanding. That was Stanford's Carl Dyseroff picking apart risk-seeking behaviour in the brain. There's a news and views about the research in the journal this week. And if you're interested in the latest developments to the technique, optogenetics, there's another report in Nature Methods that just came out last month, which has more detail about how the team has been making it more precise in space, in time and in strength. Nature.com slash nmeth.
Time now for this week's news chat, and Richard Van Norden joins us in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. Now, last week on the show, we were discussing China's emissions, and since we recorded that, China's five-year plan has been approved. What's the big news for China's greenhouse gas emissions? Well, the big news from China's five-year plan is that greenhouse gas emissions could peak much sooner than forecast. We're seeing a very rapid reshaping of the energy sector in China. At the UN Climate Summit in Paris last year, China committed to halting its growth in emissions by 2030, but many people think that a peak could come by 2025, if not sooner. And there's also a shift away from heavy manufacturing, the production of steel, and even the use of coal. Last week when I spoke to people about China's emissions, everyone said to me that China's real concern is air pollution emissions. Now, is there anything in the five-year plan which specifies how they're going to try to limit air pollution going forward? Well, there are strict new requirements on curbing air pollution, essentially driven by angry citizens. There's a commitment to cap energy consumption, which should see a reduction of coal use. But the five-year plan doesn't really specify how China is going to achieve its targets. The government's already trying to cut the levels of airborne particulate matter. Just next year, it wants to cut the Beijing air pollution by a quarter from 2012, for instance. And there's major initiatives outlined to tackle environmental protection, clean energy, smog in Beijing, fertiliser pollution in Lake Tai near Shanghai. Funding for all of this to control air pollution alone is going to increase by at least four times, we were told. And there are labs focusing solely on clean energy, environmental research and water pollution control technologies. Well, what does this mean? I mean, practically speaking, it doesn't mean that these measures will have an immediate effect But it does mean that the whole country is essentially going to become a huge laboratory for environmental research. So it could be one of the the more exciting research areas to come out of the five-year plan will be pollution control. But of course, the five-year plan isn't all an environmental plan. So we uh, had a look at China's brain science. Um, Listeners might remember that the US, Europe and Japan have all announced massive projects to map the brain. And China's brain science plan is due to be officially announced shortly expected to focus on brain disease and on artificial intelligence. China's scientists know that they are behind the rest of the world in terms of top-level talent, but they have a few factors that could help them catch up. The Chinese Neuroscience Society now has 6,000 members compared to just 1,500 a decade ago, and the country, sadly, has tens of millions of patients with psychiatric or degenerative brain disease that will make clinical studies easier, and it has hundreds of thousands of research monkeys which has already allowed Chinese researchers to take the lead in using gene editing to produce models of autism in monkeys. China also seems to be taking stem cell research more and more seriously. Yeah, well, there's going to be a massive new funding initiative called Stem Cell and Translational Research. And the grants for this are going to be awarded under a new kind of competitive process. Previously, critics said that you tend to get grants if you have political connections rather than merit, perhaps a familiar complaint about research in China and other countries. Following the last five-year plan, China invested about 3 billion yuan, which is just under half a billion dollars in stem cell research. And we were told that there'll be a big increase over the next five years. We didn't get figures. But China clearly sees the promise of stem cell and regenerative medicine as one of the key thrusts for modernising its medical service systems. Moving on to our second and also quite medical story, researchers have been using apps to collect data on patients. 
Last year, Apple debuted its research kit developer tools, which is like an app that you open on your iPhone. And scientists were allowed to essentially create research projects in this app where hopefully people would put in information. So we've kind of checked in on how these smartphone research kit programs are going. Um, and researchers have been quite impressed with what they can do. Now there are about 25 apps in Research Kit tracking anything from autism to breast cancer, Parkinson's disease. And the researchers who use these apps say what they get is scale. There's an app called Empower that tracks people with Parkinson's. It's enrolled more than 6,800 users, which is three times the number of subjects in the largest previous Parkinson's study. When you're collecting data like this, do you know whether you're getting accurate data in the same way you would if you actually brought someone into a lab? Right. So in these apps, the people doing the study don't meet the people who are putting in their data. So obviously that's a question. Now, researchers are basically trying to spot check their app data. So one team working on an asthma app they examine whether the height and gender of their users correlate with the peak flow of breathing. And, and if that does, which it does, it suggests that you're not randomly getting bad data from your participants. So there's essentially ways to cross-check whether your data is of high quality. Now, there is a question about whether apps can keep users engaged over the long term. For example, the Parkinson's app I was talking about uses the accelerometer and the microphone to measure the steadiness of the gait of the users and their speech. But only about 1,000 of these 6,800 users have elected to fill out a survey that assesses their cognitive functions. So there's a real drop-off in interest as what you're asked to do gets more difficult and time-consuming. Why would users want to do this in the first place? I can see why it's very advantageous to researchers, but is there any direct benefit to participants? Well, the problem is I don't think that people developing these apps know their users particularly well. Um, a lot of people seem to be very happy to share the data that they're putting in these apps. But beyond that, it's very, it's very remote and you're not meeting the participants. What are researchers actually hoping to do with all this newfound data? Well, it's perfect, for example, for clinical trials of drugs. So Roche, the pharmaceutical firm in Switzerland, has developed its own Parkinson's app and it's using it in a clinical study. Because you can collect data from participants daily rather than, say, once every three months, you can really see how they're progressing on their, on their new pill. Now, other people suggest that eventually you might get wearable devices that could automatically collect information about users in real time and perhaps collect insights into how to detect and prevent disease. And on 21st of March... Apple said that these apps can now import genetic data from 23andMe if, of course, the user wants that to happen. So you could potentially have a rich connection between the genetic data and what you're collecting in the app about your user. Thanks, Richard. Check out those stories at nature.com forward slash news. And for more on China's emissions, check out last week's podcast. That's all for this week. Next time, why people are so mean to each other online and how one scientist has been stopping the spats. Got feedback? Drop us an email on podcast at nature.com, tweet at nature podcast, or just give us a few stars on iTunes. I'm Kerry Smith. And thanks to Popular Vote, I'm Boaty McBoatface. Boatface.